0: Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyden and Gray Center for the study of the administrative state. I'm Adam White. In our last episode featuring uh, Sam Hallaby and Kristen Osenga, uh, we recalled how last fall the Gray Center hosted a couple of research roundtables uh, just months into the COVID-19 crisis to gather to take stock of lessons learned so far in the crisis for how better to prepare for emergencies and how better to respond for, to emergencies. My guest today, was present, she presented a paper at our second roundtable in the subject. The paper in question, and it's already on our website, it's working paper 21-17, for those who are keeping track, is titled Emergency Money, Lessons from the Paycheck Protection Program, and its author is Susan Morse, the University of Texas's Angus Wynn Professor of Law. Susan, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Adam. It's great to be here.
0: Now, Susan, I, I noticed as I was looking up your your bio online, uh, just for purposes of the introduction, uh, it, it notes that uh, Professor Morris is interested in the interaction between legal systems and private ordering. Uh, yes. That, in a way, is is a, is a theme of sorts in, in this paper. I, I found this paper really, really fascinating, and, and I'm I'm so glad we're getting a chance to walk through it.
1: Uh, thank you. Yes, that's right. It's uh, about emergency money distribution and. The core question is the extent to which the government controls that or leaves it to private actors to self-organize.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll get to that part in just a little bit, but for the sake of our audience uh, who who either may not have ever really looked into what the, the PPP was, the Paycheck Protection Program, mm-hmm. uh, or may have, have forgotten it um, many months into COVID-19, right? could you just give us a little overview, maybe first of the legislation, and then after that we'll talk about the initial rollout of the program?
1: Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, so the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, originated in late March of 2020. It was part of the CARES Act passed on March 27th. And it's the largest single component of federal pandemic relief legislation. Um, it's so far it has put out $780 billion in, uh, loans or grants, they're forgivable, so they're kind of interchangeably called loans and grants, to businesses of various sizes, and that's part of the story of the statute. Uh, And it's it's huge and unprecedented to have direct federal spending going directly to businesses in this way. Um, It's also an example of just the general problem of how to allocate an emergency fund. And that's why um, I've become interested in it. So some people say that about 70% of small businesses have gotten money from the Paycheck Protection Program, 10 million loans. So it's big, it's deep, and it's interesting to study it.
0: That's amazing. I mean, I suppose we're used to- to uh relief programs or stimulus programs that are targeted at individuals mm-hmm. and there's a pretty straightforward infrastructure for that right. sort of process um given the the sort of the complex web of of tax uh tax administration which you you right. you study and write on and then right. just social service programs in general but as you know something like this direct payments to companies really was um I don't know if it's necessarily the first of its kind. Maybe it is, um, mm-hmm. but it certainly was not something that the government had a, a built up infrastructure for. Just in really general terms, mm-hmm. um, we don't need to necessarily quote statutes, although if you have statutory language at <laughs> the tip of your fingers, feel free to use it. But just yeah. in very general terms, what was Congress trying to achieve here? And and when exactly or when roughly in 2020 was this enacted, just to give people a sense of the of the timing?
1: Uh, you might, well, the, the, the story of the PPP, um, begins in some sense on March 27th, which was about two weeks after states began to issue shutdown orders because of COVID-19. It had been in the works for probably four weeks or maybe a little bit more because, uh, Senators Marco Rubio and Susan Collins had been working together with some other other legislators on a program to help small businesses initially in the event that the pandemic became a really big crisis, then of course it did. And so with the um, cooperation also of the Treasury Department, they put this legislation together. So it's really early in the um, pandemic response. It was uh, after a much smaller bill that provided more targeted uh, health care and um, medical leave provisions. So um, it's early and big. Uh, The basic idea of the PPP is to build on the Small Business Administration's practice of giving loans to small businesses. And the structure actually isn't that the government directly gives the loans to small businesses, Rather, it guarantees loans that are made by banks. Um, so in this case, the statute said banks are authorized to make loans which the SBA will guarantee and indeed which the SBA will assume or pay off. And the terms of loans were uh, quite generous. One percent interest rate, two and a half times monthly payroll a maximum of $10 million available to businesses with 500 employees or fewer. So that's a very, very big uh, net or funnel in terms of what's being covered by the statute. Um, And uh, the second idea that was maybe even more revolutionary, so the idea that was so big, uh, available to so many businesses and in the first iteration, um, $349 billion was authorized, far larger than the SBA typically puts out in a year. But the other remarkable thing about the PPP is that the loans are forgivable, so that if a receiving business spends the money on eligible expenses, and after a... Uh, relaxation of the statute in June, the rule is spend the money over 24 weeks, 60% on payroll, 40% on other eligible expenses like utilities um, and rent, then the loan's forgiven. So in late March uh, 2020, th- there was a bit of a panic. I, I don't mean uh, an, an 1890s-style panic. Of course, the Fed was doing what it could and what it needed to do to try to stabilize markets. But what I mean was that from the perspective of a business owner, it really felt like a crisis. There was a lot of uncertainty and people were looking for cash to make sure that they had enough cash to be, to try to have some confidence their business was going to be all right, was going to weather whatever might be coming. So this initial $349 billion allocation for the PPP was something that was very attractive to businesses and something that um, people quickly went after.
0: And maybe before we, we talk about how exactly people went after this and how it went out, mm-hmm. one of the things your paper does a nice job of just emphasizing in, in giving the background of this is that Congress has sort of a, a Goldilocks approach in, in who they were trying to Help here mm-hmm. right it wasn 't to give money to people who didn 't need it because they were successful and and sound mm-hmm.
2: right. and it wasn 't exactly
0: to give money to to companies that were already before the before the crisis were mm-hmm. um, you, you know on the way on, on the way out mm-hmm. it was to help those people who would be solvent and 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 ongoing businesses, but for the sudden crisis of COVID-19 and all the shutdowns and everything Mm -hmm. that that entailed. And so, as you say a few times, Congress was trying to strike a balance. Am I getting that right?
1: I think so, especially based on the way that folks like senators Collins and Rubio spoke about the program. Uh, They talked about it as a bridge, If the crisis made it difficult for an otherwise healthy business to survive, then this would be something that would help them get through. That was the idea. Um, It is a little tricky to tie that specific idea to the statutory language. Interesting. Uh, So that the statute has some specific requirements. You have to, applicants must go through a bank. There's a specific set of things you have to certify in order to apply. Um, Then there's a forgiveness. Uh, approach as well that applicants have to follow, yeah. but the the reason for the program is not as clearly stated as you just explained it a moment ago.
0: So well, maybe we'll get back to that point later. I mean that of yeah. course, needless to say, is a recurring issue in in any kind of legislation that right. that the debate surrounding the, the 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 legislative process doesn't always necessarily translate. Clearly into statutory text, to say right. the least. Right. Um, but why don't we talk? You, you, your paper, then, in the next part of your paper, you 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 lay out quite nicely uh, how the uh, how the initial implementation of the of the PPP program worked at Treasury and and the SBA. So so how and and you say sort of there's an initial stage, right, mm-hmm. where where banks are handing out money. And then there's sort of a subsequent stages where the process is maybe recalibrated a little bit over time, but but you you wrote the paper, not me. Why don't you explain uh, what happened?
1: Well, the idea of recalibration is exactly right. So, and and now since we, we have a little bit more time with the program uh, because there's still a moment where applications are open until May 31 of this year, I Hmm. think we can think of it as, Uh, three waves. Um, So the first wave we can think of as the unregulated wave, and that would be the first two weeks of the program when all of the $349 billion originally allocated was um, granted. Then the second wave features safe harbor enforcement, and the most important piece of that was the discouragement of loans to public companies and to applicants asking for two million dollars or more, and that was from April to August of 2020. Oops. And then there's a
0: no. Go a ahead, gap. go ahead. I'll, uh, I'll jump back in, in a second. Yeah, go please.
1: Ahead. And then there's a little gap because uh, the PPP wasn't wasn't um, wasn't live from August to December, but in December it was reauthorized, um, and I think that the 2021 third wave of the PPP is really sector specific. Uh, it's, it's, there are more specific requirements in the statute. It's really directed toward businesses that can show revenue loss and, and in a couple of cases to sectors like hospitality um, and a favorite in Austin um, uh, performance venue operators. So this sort of the st- three, three waves are basically, um, I think of them as, the unregulated wave, the enforcement safe harbor wave, yeah. and then the sector-specific wave.
0: Well, as a, as a fan of Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings, I, I appreciate wave number three, but I digress.
1: Well, Willie Nelson's birthday was yesterday, uh, so I guess we don't have to digress too much more today on that, but uh, we here we, we our radio station plays Willie Nelson deep tracks all day long on his birthday. So, um uh,
0: Our audience should know we're recording this on, on April 30th, so it's it's a little late to send Willie a card, but I'm sure he appreciates the well wishes. Why did, why did the program recalibrate in these waves? What, how did it, maybe a little bit more detail, how did it play out in the first wave? Mm -hmm. You point out in your paper, the first wave was, was bigger sums, sort of bigger mm-hmm. lumps going out at a time, right. and then the second wave and, and, and so on. How, how did that progress? Because that really, that learning process is part of what informs you, ultimately your your own pre- proposed reforms at the end of the paper.
1: Oh, that's, ex- that's exactly right. Uh, the, 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 the the learning curve um, is the story, I think. In the first uh, moment, I think that uh, I in order to try to explain it i i guess i have to access myself what it felt like to be in that moment in late march all the business people i know were really worried um everybody was really worried uh and the kind of the, the at-home routines were, were were very new and uncomfortable um and there was a lot of uncertainty and and fear i guess and i think that what was going on uh and the administration side was partly um, uncertainty about what to do, partly a concern about just trying to figure out how to get cash out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and partly maybe um, uh, there was a thought that if the government did less, it would somehow be better because it would be like, People who are applying for the PPP would form a line, if you will. They would queue uh, in order to obtain the benefits of the program. And in some sense, there's something that I think strikes us as inherently fair about a queue. It's 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 as if you know the, the government's not interfering too much with the way that the queue develops. It's just something that people know how to do. They line up, and then that's somehow appropriate an appropriate way to distribute. A resource um, What happened in this case is that the queue was skewed, um, and there's a uh, really uh, deep literature even now about the PPP, a lot of empirical work. And what it basically shows is that loans grants in the first two weeks of the PPP, the first wave, went disproportionately to larger um, applicants. And to applicants with good banking relationships. And even among those with solid banking relationships, the loans went disproportionately to those who had lending relationships with banks. You know, suggesting that the mechanism at hand was that there were, first of all, gatekeepers, banks, um, favoring their clients, especially favoring the clients where the ability to repay a loan would also benefit the bank, yeah. um, and also there were there was the fact that um, you can see the applicants really um, just being willing to make this so-called hardship exemption um, that the uncertainty of current economic conditions makes necessary the loan request to support ongoing operations. Yeah. So. I think that at that moment, it felt like the uncertainty was so great that it was actually fairly straightforward to make that representation in many, many cases. Um, so the numbers are quite, quite remarkable in terms of the way they've changed. Um, and we can talk, if you like, about the size of the loans and how they've changed over the course of the program. But the bottom line for the first wave is the government didn't really regulate. It had a first come, first served. It used those language in, that language in its guidance. Um, and people lined up according to strength, according to resources or relationships, and that is what determined how the first um, tranche of PPP money got allocated.
0: Maybe let's just drop a footnote here on the role of the banks. Yeah, was it evident why Congress sort of made the banks the, the implicit? Sort of fifth ban- fifth branch of government as you know phrase you use a couple times in the paper. Yeah. Um, why they they relied so heavily on the banks to administer this program? Um, because I suppose maybe in hindsight, I suppose mm-hmm. it's just clear if you're going to rely on on existing banks to 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 right. administer this program, well then of course it's the program then will will first and foremost benefit people with pre existing relationships with the banks, mm-hmm. both because there's a relationship there. There's already Mm -hmm. the banks already have information. And then of Mm -hmm. course the banks, to the extent they're lending money to companies that might be at risk, they have their own sort of motives for this. But I guess, again, the question is
2: why the banks? Well, I think it's the least bad way. It's, it it
1: was possible because uh, there is the, the the banking network does have relationships with most businesses yeah. while the government doesn't necessarily have direct financial or payment um, relationships with all businesses. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, the stimulus payments were made possible because of the tax systems connection yeah. to individual taxpayers. But it's, It's not as robust in the case of um, businesses so that, for example, if a business is organized as a partnership, then it is true that the partnership is a filing entity, but it's not a tax-paying entity. It's the partners that pay tax. So the connections are just not strong enough direct government and the the way that was available was this SBA structure that relied on financial intermediaries. Um, The other point to note, though, is that there was... There was concern about the banks being willing to take this task on. They, they, they are, um, there are fees that are earned in the statute. But um, in addition, there, there was a little bit of um, a decision made early in the program to absolve banks of responsibility for representations made by applicants. So different choices probably could have been made to make the banks more effective gatekeepers, and they were made later in the program but the, again the, to just to, to understand this the first two weeks, I always have to remind myself of the of the um, of the chaos and uncertainty that I personally remember feeling and that yeah. I think most people felt at that moment in time,
0: yeah, we were also busy stockpiling. Uh, paper products and trying right. to homebrew our own hand sanitizers. Really much
1: right. Time. And the equivalent for a business, I guess, is cash. You sort of think yeah. if I only have, if I only have whatever it is, this supply. Yeah.
0: And, and thinking about, thinking about problem. it from an administrative perspective, this is only one thing that they're worried about, right? I mean, it's a big thing, right. but right. they're dealing with, first of all, the, 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 I mean, as in the last episode, mm-hmm. vaccine development and, right. and all of that, doing that as quickly as possible, dealing mm-hmm. with the geopolitical situation, mm-hmm. dealing with all of the issues. I mean, it is even just a year later, it's hard to put ourselves in those shoes, but it was just right. total, total chaos and, and suddenly coming to grips with the fact that there were so many unknowns mm-hmm. that um, we needed to grapple with. Um, I was trying to think of analogies to the, this mm-hmm. structure of relying on the banks. In a way, it's kind of like mortgages, right? Mm-hmm. Except the federal government wants to subsidize home ownership. Mm-hmm. They don't send, I mean, they do mm-hmm. a lot and some of it's through the tax code. But one of the mm-hmm. things that they do, right, is we have Fannie and Freddie, which buy mm-hmm. up mortgages mm-hmm. um, and take, and in that way, use the mortgage lenders as sort of intermediaries mm-hmm. to help support housing policy. So it's not, I asked about the banks. I don't want to give the, the suggestion that this is totally unprecedented. I mean, right. this particular program is unprecedented, mm-hmm. but there were reasons, you know, good faith reasons to to mm-hmm. rely on the banks. But of course, as we see, and again, as we'll get to in a little bit, the limitation, when the limitations of that become clear, the question is, well, maybe should government should have done this directly rather than relying on, on private parties. Um,
1: maybe. Maybe. I I I don't I don't know that uh, I don't know that I don't mean to take that on in the paper. Um yeah. partly because um I think that it's probably a, a good test case for an emergency fund in the sense that it wasn't pre-planned and the instructions were vague and time was short, and so the question that interests me the most about this is How do you administer under those conditions? Yeah.
0: All right. But before we get to that, the Mm -hmm. one last part of the story of of the PPP rollout is the Shake Shack moment. Um, Yes. What was the remind people? What did it mean to get Shake Shacked in the middle of this uh, crisis?
1: So the Shake Shack moment was this moment between the first and the second wave of the uh, PPP. So um, just to, to the to outline that piece of it, uh, let me offer the following data. Um, first wave of the PPP, those first two weeks, 47% of the loans were more than a million dollars. In the second wave, April to August, 23%. And in the third, in 2021, 17%. So just a really big decrease in the number of big loans between the first and the second wave. And the way to explain that starts with Shake Shack, because what happened was that a number of businesses um, secured PPP loans that were not only large, but also well-known. So it was a very uh, straightforward story to absorb that Shake Shack got a $10 million loan. And many, many small restaurants who perhaps had information that was not as good or maybe banking relationships that were um, not as solid as Shake Shacks or just not, they weren't, uh, the, the, they weren't um, the same size client for a bank, something along, along those lines. They didn't have access to the PPP. They couldn't access the PPP portal because it was, overwhelmed with applications and kept crashing and because there was limited capacity of banks to process this brand new provision. Um, so the there was a lot of media attention. And this is something that I think is really under-theorized in the law. How does media attention and reputation affect private actors' behavior? Because uh, it was really all about private actors jostling for position in line. And then all of a sudden, The question of whether you, one would be quote unquote shake shacked or facing adverse media attention for applying for a PPP loan, uh, arose and quite a few, um, companies gave back money, uh, and some, uh, didn't apply going forward because of this reputational concern. There's one interesting paper that shows that health industry, um, applicants in particular were less likely To retain their PPP funds. And the theory is that they are more interested in their reputation with the government because of drug approvals and things like that. So it's an interesting example of the the ability of media attention and reputational concerns to change the way that private actors approach a government program.
0: And just on that point, just to help situate your paper in all the other writings on the PPP Mm-hmm. Subject, as you point out in the paper, there's obviously been no shortage of of, of scholarly inquiry into the PPP program, mm-hmm. but the sort of the the overlooked parts of that are important, and they're at the heart of your paper. It's focusing on, as we did, just as you do, sort of briefly, the impact of of. Of outside institutions like the media and so on, mm-hmm. but also just focusing on Treasury and the SBA and, mm-hmm. and their rollout here, and and right. maybe you can put it better than me. But but you describe how how research up to this point. I'm sure others will will write mm-hmm. more in the future. But mm-hmm. up to this point, people have been focused elsewhere. I guess focused mm-hmm. on Congress, perhaps, or or why don't you describe all all that?
1: Yeah, I think there does tend to be a, um, a, a very Important and justified interest in how the administrative state interacts with the other branches of government, um, with the three, if you like, official or constitutional branches of government with Congress and, um, and the judiciary and the executive. And there's so much in administrative law that's written about that. This case study is hard to explain by, um, telling a story about how the administrators were swayed by Congress or the judiciary or, or even the executive. I, I, I think that when the, um, the first wave was, uh, was, was developing, it was, it basically developed because of the actions of private actors of the people who were applying for loans and the banks that were intermediating the loans. The media intervention was another, um, another series of events that happened outside the government and in some sense it affected the decisions of private actors without necessarily any further intervention by the government as it turns out and we can talk about it in a minute the government did change its regulatory strategy but in part it did that i think at least the most useful way to think about it is that it did that because it was trying to figure out how the program ought to interact with the market. Oh. Um, it's not, of course, there were there were people and there were um, legislators who were um, criticizing the way the PPP uh, was rolling out and that it was disproportionately going to larger loans. There is a, a collection of case law that has to do with PPP that that exists, but to me, a big part of the story is this interaction between. The market and the administrators
0: right and focusing on the administrators you point out i guess this really is the crux of the paper that the administrators were confronting two types of un- two aspects of uncertainty right mm-hmm. one was an uncertainty inherent in the statute the statute just like so many statutes was just not precise and left discretion in the hands mm-hmm. of the agencies and of course. Throughout government and throughout our history,
2: mm-hmm.
0: agencies have almost have uh, administrations have always had more discretion in emergencies. So that wasn't yep. necessarily out of place, but still, it's, it was an, something that the agencies had to grapple with. So there was yes. the uncertainty of how what, what the statute intended. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was just the uncertainty of, of the uncertainty caused by just the lack of information about the the practical situation at hand. Right What was happening right. in this crisis? What was happening with these companies? How do we get the right information about from these companies, even if we could come up with the right standards to apply? How do we map those standards onto individual cases as quickly as possible? You mm-hmm. say at the very beginning of your paper, um, page three, you say that that your, your approach contrasts with an assumption in existing literature that mm-hmm. the emergent nature of the PPP prevented effective government regulation. As One mm-hmm. paper claims the social planner trades off the speed of loan delivery with the effectiveness of loan targeting. Mm-hmm. You say this, ar- this article respectfully disagrees. Government can target emergency money immediately without information and in the presence of a vague statute. Yep. and that's that's the, the 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 thrust then of the mm-hmm. the sort of the, the the back part of the paper. Having laid mm-hmm. all these the, mm-hmm. laid out all the background, mm-hmm. you offer some lessons learned, and of course, that's you know the the, mm-hmm. the importance of what we do here is mm-hmm. is trying to offer lessons for policymakers and judges and and other institutions going right. forward. Right. So, right. What can, is it too uh, soon to turn to the three lessons? Is there anything else in the background you want to sort of touch that's on before we get to it?
1: I'm happy to talk about the lessons that sounds that sounds good and I think that the this trade-off between speed and accuracy um I I, I don't want to say that it doesn't exist I think it does but I think that it can be mitigated. The, I think that the way that it's often heard is first we need to gather all the information. After we gather all the information then we can figure out how to distribute emergency money. Yeah. But I don't think that's right. I think that instead you can Figure out ways to, um, first of all, distribute money now and later adjust the terms of paying it off, which happened in the PPP and there's several other models for it. And in addition, um, there, it, it's possible to figure out how to collect information while distributing funds. So to use the distribution of funds to collect information. Um, is another way of administering that, that tries to um, solve this puzzle of the trade-off between speed and accuracy.
0: Well, let's, let's unpack your lessons one at a time. And the first one, as you describe in the paper is this, the first lesson of the PPP, the first lesson the PPP offers is to illustrate how legislatures give discretion to administrators in an emergency. So looking at the legislature, uh, what do we learn from the PPP experience?
1: There are a lot of reasons why legislatures might give discretion to administrative agencies. Um, One is that there's disagreement at the legislature. Um, Another is that um, legislators might want to um, both claim that the statute does one thing and expect that administrators will take it and do another. But in emergencies, there's, uh, there's another really important reason, which is that they just don't know. They're just not sure what the right policy is. It's not necessarily a matter of disagreement. It's a matter of not knowing. Um, and um, maybe there's a little bit also of uh, administrators, excuse me, legislators um, saying to themselves, it's going to be really hard to figure out how to allocate this. We, we, we know it's hard. We'd rather not think about it because we don't want to have the responsibility, perhaps, of making that decision or being seen to make that decision. So there's just a lot of reasons why emergency statutes um, tend to be vague. And uh, the, the, the TARP in 2008 was also um, open to several interpretations. There are other examples and other... Um, literature on this as well um so i guess that's the first lesson that this is the part of the paper where i say let's not that's that that i, I should say I, I don't want in this paper to say next time congress ought to da, da 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 like because what i really think is next time congress will do something that is vague yeah
0: I mean, you might not want, I kind of want to say that myself. I mean, I, re, reading this experience and, mm-hmm. and yeah, here living here in Washington, I, I know mm-hmm. I have friends who were in the administration, including many in treasury. And, mm-hmm. and I know that they were grappling with a lot, um, because Congress had left them such responsibility and such power. And mm-hmm. I, I look at this and I, I want to sort of pick up Congress and sort of shake it by the shoulders and say, get your act together. You know, next, right. maybe it's a little too late for for COVID nineteen and PPP, but will there will be a next time? We had mm-hmm. TARP just a decade ago. We have this now. Mm-hmm. Surely there'll be another crisis next time. It, it worries me that the better, it, what worries me, I suppose, is that if if future administrations take your advice on how best to grapple with mm-hmm. uh, with with vague legislation. Um, they might find themselves cleaning up Congress's mess, right? The, the better that mm-hmm. the administration does at, at, um, implementing these vague statutes, the even less impetus there will be for Congress to actually legislate precisely. Um, maybe and with all due respect right. to your paper, maybe if nobody follows your advice and, and, it, and everything goes poorly on the administrative side, Congress would, would have to try harder in the, in the first instance. I, I know your paper is about is yeah. and not, not should yeah. on this point. So I don't want to push you too hard on it, but.
1: Well, you know, if 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 we imagine, you know, friends of ours who are administrators who are in the government, yeah. it it's hard for me to think that that they ought to do less in the service of eventually encouraging Congress to do more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. if, if we were to say, all right, they should do what they 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 should take make their best efforts at a good faith interpretation of the statute and try to make it work. And also, we should have various judicial and other processes to check them and make sure that they understand where, where the limits are. Um, I'm on board with that, and I think that you know the paper tries to be careful about saying, okay, here's where the discretion comes from; it is from the statute and so forth. Um, but from the administrator's point of view, I, can we really say that they ought to do nothing? Yeah. If it's vague?
2: Yeah.
0: I, I suppose from the administrator's point of view, um, especially in a crisis, uh, you know, we live in an imperfect world and we, we, we go to war with the Congress we have and so on. And yeah, so on. Right, so, something
1: like that. Good point.
0: Uh, right. OK. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson uh, is that administrative allocation of emergency funds is possible even without instructions, information, or time. And and Mm -hmm. your your paper offers uh, some suggestions on how agencies trying to uh, administer an emergency program could make informed decisions without information, so to speak, up front.
1: Yeah. So there are two two main ideas under this uh, category. One is back-end regulation. And uh, we were, so there were so many fantastic people at the roundtable that the Gray Center put on last year. Um, and one of them was Robert Glixman. And he has written with uh, Sidney Shapiro an article about back-end regulation. And the basic idea is that uh, we, ha- we have a, um, if you have an uncertain situation, which this is, so check, um, then a regulator or a legislature may want to start strict and then make the rules more relaxed over time. Um, and for what it's worth, we saw this in the PPP. For example, the statute started with an eight week period to um, use loaned money and the statute actually not the administrator, but the statute later extended it to 24 weeks um, there are other examples as well of that back-end regulation. But the more interesting piece of the back-end regulation for the PPP was actually something that made it stricter. And this happened in April of 2020 and May of 2020, when the um, Treasury and SBA discouraged public companies and applicants for over $2 million from obtaining loans. And they did it with these relatively gentle statements of enforcement intent. We may audit an applicant who asks for more than $2 million. We plan to audit public companies. So it was really, the, it was not a um, you know, regulation saying, if you're asking for more than $2 million, just, you know forget about it. You just can't come in the door. It was rather, we may look at your paperwork. I mean, we may audit you. Um, and that was enough not only to discourage future applications, but also to encourage, um, folks to give funds back. Shake Shack did, a number of other public companies did. So, uh, there was, there was, um, that piece. And I think that's back-end regulation that gets stricter, not more lax. Yet it worked. In some sense, it, it whether we, it, it happened. Um, in the sense that they managed to change the shape of the program with that tactic.
0: Um, And on that point, I mean, the way you just described it there as Mm -hmm. as a sort of just a novice listening in on this, I'll be honest, it's, it does sound a little passive aggressive, right? They didn't say here specifically what we'll do. um, But they, you know, said, you know, just think twice before you do that because other things yes. might happen. I mean, couldn't they have been yes. more precise and, and said, here are the specific lines we're drawing? Or, why be vague about this? We have a, a vague statute and mm-hmm. now a vague implementation, and we're really sort mm-hmm. of pushing down to the, the applicants themselves the burdens of trying to divine the intent of what this program is is all about. So what about, what, what would you say to somebody like me who says, why shouldn't the agencies just say what they're really thinking? And and make up their minds and then say what they're thinking.
1: Well, I think that in one sense, you're right. The safe harbor method of enforcement um, and using enforcement discretion to achieve a result like this is a little passive aggressive. I think that's true. On the other hand, it's kind of how law develops. So if you think about the way that any law develops, whether it 's a series of common law cases or whether it 's a program like this, mm-hmm. the way that it often works is by um, a decision maker saying well i 'm pretty sure this category is okay mm-hmm. and that 's really what the safe harbor was about. It was about the treasury saying we 're pretty sure that under two million it 's okay so it's hard to escape that that's just how law develops. Um, you can think of a continuum of possibilities. Um, the Treasury says, "Don't even you may not apply if it's two million dollars." They say you may apply if it's two million dollars, but you have to justify your need based on these exceptions. Um, we may uh, we we will look at you if it's more than two million dollars. We may look at you if it's two million dollars, um, and 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 maybe another possibility is there's a secret policy at the treasury and SBA where people in the know, know that you're more likely to be audited if it's more than $2 million. So I don't really know what, what to make of all those policies, except that I, I do think that it's tricky to think of how they could have administered the statute without allocating enforcement resources. And it doesn't seem completely, it doesn't seem unreasonable to me that they would allocate them more towards larger loans. So is it passive aggressive a little bit? Yes. But could you administer w- without that sort of division of enforcement resources? I'm not sure I see how you could
0: yeah, and I joke about it being passive aggressive I mean again, the, the whole point of this is that this is an occasion where there was emergency circumstances and imperfect information, and the agency is learning right. as it goes in some ways, and Correct. so being a little bit less categorical and rigid up front was 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 mm-hmm. perhaps unavoidable right. um, in this point about on the second lesson about how to allocate these funds in an emergency even without information. Mm-hmm. You, draw, you, you offer some analogies to, to mm-hmm. auctions, to descending mm-hmm. price auctions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why, don't you, why don't you explain what, what you suggest there? I found this very interesting.
1: Um, well, thanks. Uh, so the, the, the overall idea is that um, you could think about allocating an emergency fund in descending order of necessity. So this is you know again another way to try to solve this central tension of speed versus accuracy. And the idea would be to gather information along the way as funds are being distributed. So it's in some sense like an auction to sell treasury bonds where the idea is to start with a high price and reduce the price until you reach the clearing price at which, which all the bonds will sell. This example would be to start at a low grant amount and increase the grant amount until you reach the grant amount at which all of the allocated funds will be dispersed. So, um, I have a little numerical example here. Uh, If a $350 billion emergency fund is authorized, you can imagine there are $500,000, $250,000 requests. And $250,000, $500,000 $250,000, $500,000 requests and $100,000, $1 million requests. That, that adds up to $350 billion. And that means that the fund would be fully dispersed and that maximum grant size of a million dollars would be the clearing grant amount. So you'd start low and increase the grant amount until all of the funds were allocated. And that would be a way of starting with presumably the most necessary grants and gathering information about the applicant pool as you move along.
0: And impl- I think implicit in, in your framework, correct me if I'm wrong, is that all applicants get one bite of the apple, right? That it's not as though uh, City, city, or city yeah. Bank or JP Morgan could come and just ask for a thousand, you know, mm-hmm. smaller increment l- loans, right? It's that everybody gets to apply for one amount and And so you're you're helping all yeah. the people who say, "Well, I can get by with a loan of ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and then I'll, I sure. can get by with a loan that, that's what you mean
1: that is the 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 purest translation of the descending price auction model it's the kind of the 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 pay what you bid or multiple price approach um mm-hmm. it, you just sort of get one shot as you say um, The thing about that is that uh, you need to be, I think, committed ex ante to distributing the whole fund in this way if you do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a variation of this, if the goal of the descending order of necessity thing is to get information about the applicant pool, and that's the really important priority, then you could do it another way in which you would ask for applications from anyone, but only grant each person up to whatever the, the the tranche was that you were granting. Say it's initially one hundred thousand dollars or initially two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and then um, as it it became clear that the fund could support larger grants, you would top up the larger grant applications. And that approach is similar to um, a single price or clearing price approach to a bond auction.
0: And and just I'll just say briefly. Um, in addition to this analogy to the the, the the auction approach, you say other sort of ways that administrators could go about this is is just dividing people up according to sectors right which mm-hmm. sectors seem most in in need of help and and sort of satisfying all of that demand first and then moving on to others right. um, but the third lesson then in your mm-hmm. that you draw from PPP mm-hmm. is that administrators should often choose regulation and not deregulation. Um, they should not leave the allocation of emergency funds for private actors in the market and elsewhere to work right. out. And so here, once again, we, we, we come to the
2: banks and, and right. the people that they were working with. So why don't you explain this lesson? Yeah. So, so the, the,
1: the pri- private actors will allocate funds in a way that serves the interests of the private actors. And so
2: if, the purpose of the law is to
1: allocate funds in a different way, then the private actor market allocation will not fulfill the purpose of the statute. So in some sense, it's important to specify the condition, the if. So here, what I have to argue in order to make the claim that the government should have done more and earlier, what I have
2: to say is, In that hardship
1: certification that the uncertainty of current economic conditions makes necessary the loan request to support ongoing operations, there is the statutory language and the legislative intent to distribute according to need at some level. You know, among applicants who are eligible who do the application process. So it's not as if the government's supposed to proactively go out and seek out the, the neediest applicants necessarily, although that has been done, and I think it's probably a good thing. But the more important point is that the reason that regulation is the right choice in this case is that what the market does is not what the statute wants to do. Um, at one point in the paper, I contrast it with a reduction in the Fed funds rate. There, the the kind of the whole idea is that we're going to change the interest rate, and the market is will do its magic. But that's not what the
2: statute said, and so I think that's why I reached that third lesson. Well, Susan, again, this is a fascinating paper in that it,
0: in the way it first lays out very precisely what the the real world situation was. It lays out very well. Sort of what's missing in the academic discourse uh, surrounding this, and then it fills that 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 open space with with I think pretty pretty interesting lessons, not just for folks who are interested in PPP, but folks who are interested in administration in general. Um, before we go, are is there any sort of closing thoughts uh, that we've left out here? Things that you hope um, our audience will draw from your paper, and of course they should read the paper uh, after the podcast. But but any any sort of
2: closing thoughts you want to leave them with? Well, um, I think that it's a good and useful thing
1: to think about how administrators can do the best job possible. I'm in a place in a camp where I think that considering the regulatory design tools that would help bureaucrats do good, responsible, effective work is a good thing to think about. And that's why I'm interested in regulatory design. It's why I became interested in this project as well. So I guess I want to put that out as something that's a a valid and useful thing to think about.
0: Well, I'm so grateful that you brought this paper to our roundtable last fall, and I'm very glad that we're able to post it online. Uh, has it been published in, in final format anywhere else yet, or is this still the most recent version?
1: Uh, there, it's, it's, it's coming out in the Michigan uh, Journal of Law Reform, and that will be this fall. So I was very um, happy to be able to have it come out um, fairly soon. And you do have the most recent version, I'm pretty sure, for posting on the website.
0: Perfect. Well, then, folks who would like to read this um, before the, the the editors up in Michigan finish up, um, they can find it on our website in the Working Paper series. Uh, the title is Emergency Money, Lessons from the Paycheck Protection Program. It's Gray Center Working Paper 21-17. And its author, our guest today, is Susie Morris. Susan, thanks again for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Adam.
0: Right, And thanks to our listeners for tuning in once again. If you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, uh, maybe even leave five stars if you're feeling generous. And please do join us for the next episode of Gray Matters.